0: The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present this recording from Savor 2013 in New York City. This recording is from Saturday, June 15th. Apocalypse Now and Again and Again featuring Dick Cantwell from Elysian Brewing Company.
1: My name is Andy Sparhawk. I'm the craft beer program coordinator for the Brewers Association. The Brewers Association is presenting to you savor an American craft beer food experience. So thank you so much for coming. A couple of uh, housekeeping uh, um, notes for you before we get going with uh, Dick Cantwell. Um, First of all, I'd like to encourage you all to silence or turn off your phones so he is not interrupted while he was talking. Um, Secondly, I'd like to thank our sponsors and supporters, uh, Manhattan Beer Distributors. This would not have happened without uh, their uh, assistance and, and support. So thank you so much for, to Manhattan Beer Distributors, also our uh, supporting cast uh, that have provided or allowed for the salons to happen. Secondly, I'd like to uh, let you guys know that these salons are being recorded by Craft Beer Radio, craftbeerradio.com and will be presented on craftbeer.com, which is the consumer-facing website for the Brewers Association. So uh, if you ask a question or you want to hear more about what Dick is talking about, um, uh, you can hear them there. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Dick Cantwell. Uh, if I could, I I'll I'll read his bio. Uh, Dick Cantwell has been brewing for... Professionally in Seattle for over 20 years and co-founded Elysian Brewing Company in 1996. Elysian was awarded Brewmaster and Large Brew Pub of the Year honors at the Great American Beer Festival in 1999, 2003, 2004, and in 2006. Dick received the Russell Shear Award for Innovation and Excellence in Brewing. He co-authored Barley Wine in the Brewer's Publication Style Book series and is the author of the recently issued Brewer's Association Guide to Starting Your Own Brewery. Please join me in welcoming Dick Cantwell, Elysian Brewing Company, Seattle, Washington. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you very much, um, and thanks a lot for coming. Uh, What I decided I'd like to talk about is um, a program that my brewery entered into last year, which was uh, uh, we had a new production brewery, which has been now online for about a year and a half. And uh, with that, we have a lot more production capability. And so we decided to sort of try to draw some attention to ourselves by undertaking a ridiculously ambitious and difficult logistically project project. Um, and so what we decided to do was issue 12 beers uh, leading up to the end of the Mayan calendar uh, and the theoretical end of the world. And so every month we decided we were going to, is- to release a beer on the 21st of the month. Uh, lead- and we, were going to ha- we had events at, at our pubs um, each for- to release those beers on the 21st of the month. Uh, with, you know, games and costumes and stuff, and people were totally into it. Um, and then uh, leading up to the eve of the apocalypse, which was supposed to occur on December 21st, so we had our party on the 20th, just in case. Um, but anyway, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Uh, a little bit of background. Um, we have always had sort of uh, mythological themes to a, lot of our, to a lot of our beers and a lot of our sort of imagery, because uh, the Elysian Fields comes from Greek mythology. Uh, in fact, we've pretty much flogged that to death over the years, and we decided to sort of do a little bit of a rethink with, uh, with the branding and go with more of the uh, sort of urban mythologies um, which doesn't mean the cat in the microwave and the Kentucky Fried Rat, but it means it means sort of uh, more urban takes on mythological figures. Like uh, uh, one of our beers is called Prometheus, an IPA. But uh, rather than do the uh, uh, the, the guy stealing fire from the gods, which is what we started with, we reinterpreted, reinterpreted it as a fire juggler, you know, with tattoos and you know dreadlocks and all that. Um, so, anyway, we, uh, another thing that we like to do, and, and sort of in keeping with that, uh, our imagery has always sort of, I mean, not always, but with this most recent rethink, uh, we're trying to concentrate. There's no shortage of breweries that has boats, have boats and bikes and waterfalls and mountains on their labels. So, we decided to concentrate more on the great indoors. Uh, Because that's really what Seattle's known for, movies and bookstores and coffee shops and craft breweries. So things that you do during, you know, really pretty lousy weather. Because I think there's a a strong correlation between bad weather and good beer culture. Um, I'll talk about the beer you're tasting uh, in just a bit. But... uh, we, uh, another thing we do is ally ourselves with other Seattle alternative institutions. So for Sub Pop Records, you know, which is one of the classic sort of Seattle grunge labels, uh, we I- issued, a, in conjunction with Sub Pop, for their 20th anniversary, we did a beer for them, which is now a year-round beer for us called Loser. Um, and uh, borrowing from some of the sub-pop and Nirvana and all that stuff, the slogan for it was corporate beer, beer sucks, because that's the shirt Kurt Cobain was wearing on the cover of Rolling Stone. But it has said corporate, r- corporate uh, rock sucks. Um, but anyway, so moving into this project, the 12 beers of the apocalypse, we decided to aliy- align ourselves with Fanagraphics Books, which is another Seattle alternative institution. They're publishers of graphic novels and comics. Um, and so we contacted them, got together over lunch, and, uh, one of the first things they said was, yeah, we're really glad you called. We were kind of jealous of Sub Pop. So that was a good start to the whole thing. Um, one thing I want to talk about with regard to all these beers, um, is the, there's a, there's a story behind every beer, and I might as well talk about this one now, um, I picked four of the beers that I think have, have lasted particularly well, because, of course, at this point, we're well into 2013, and even the youngest of these beers is six months old. So um, this, this is a, an elderflower saison. Um, I, decide, I got, got the idea for doing something with elderflowers uh, from a visit that I made to um, Cantillon, a couple of springs ago, uh, they had a really nice lambic that they had in these uh, earthenware amphorae uh, that was flavored with elderflowers. And I'd I'd used elderflowers in in mead making at home, uh, but I'd never actually used them in brewing. So that made me want to try to do something for this apocalypse series because of course one of the challenges was coming up with 12 ideas for new beers. And in some cases, they were developments, you know, sort of iterations of things that we had done before. Uh, we we mi- tried to make them fairly strong so that they would last, uh, and also because they were going to be expensive, and they, be- and they would need to be expensive, uh, because we were using, I was typically spending, you know, two to $4,000 extra just on the specialty ingredients for the 200-some barrel batch that we were doing. Um, this is a project that we'll never be able to do again, uh, it's because we had that production brewery, and we had the capability to be able to sneak an extra 240-barrel batch in, say, uh, t- to, to do that. Now we're just too busy, and we, you know, we, we'd better be because we built this brewery. But it, w- it was taking advantage of this, uh, this window of opportunity that we had. Uh, now, this beer uses a, a French saison yeast, which is really my favorite saison yeast these days, the, thir- the y Yeast 3711. And we, uh, we actually, one, one point that I've made many times, I gave a talk at the National Homebrewers Conference last year about theoretically the t- subject of the talk was brewing with weird ingredients. But really more than that, it was about the sources of inspiration for beers. Uh, so I talked about how some of the ideas will de- were developed for, for various things, and I'll talk more about that today too. Um, we... Uh, um, needed to tap, I think, six different sources in the country of elderflowers. We got all the elderflowers that were available, probably spent more on you know, overnight shipping at the end because they, they turned out to be more difficult to get. But the point that I was starting to develop was that you can use um, an unusual ingredient in a homebrew-sized batch really pretty easily. All it involves is throwing a handful of something in. But if you're making 240 barrels of it, Uh, If anything, nearly anything can become a weird ingredient just by, you know, the fact that you're dealing with drums of things and enormous quantities, Uh, you're figuring out when you can introduce it, having to go up on catwalks to introduce, put them into the manways of fermenters, all that stuff. Um, But anyway, so... This was a pretty straightforward beer, really. Uh, it was the Saison, and the the elderflowers were steeped in the whirlpool at the very end of the boil. We hammer milled them so that they were super fine and wouldn't clog up the heat exchanger. But I thought this would be a good, refreshing beer to start with. Now, we, we got together with the Fantagraphics folks, and... They've published a lot of pretty interesting stuff over the years. They've been around for about thirty years, and um, I don't know if you knew this, but Seattle was also a big hotbed of uh, graphic novel and comic comic artists, uh, particularly in the late '80s and early '90s. I mean, Matt Groening is from is from the area, and a lot of these people went to the Evergreen State College at about the same time. Linda Berry and uh, we. The first idea was that we were going to do labels using a succession of artists, but finally we decided to concentrate just on one. And uh, the one we chose, partly because he was so unsettling, and uh, since we, we had this sort of apocalyptic theme, was a guy named Charles Burns. And uh, I remember um, I really enjoyed uh, some of his stuff that was published in some of the alternative papers in Seattle uh, like there, we, we still have one called The Stranger. There used to be more of a music-themed one called The Rocket. And he had a, a, a strip in there that I always used to read called Dog Boy about uh, a guy who had the tiny heart of a Labrador transplanted into his body and was periodically confused by the different urges he felt. <laughs> so anyway, Charles Burns published uh, a series of comics called Black Hole... And uh, they're sort of, well, you ha- they're, they're, ver- they're very disturbing. They're about sort of a, sort of a plague that runs rampant among teen- Seattle teenagers. Um, and this is the book. It was eventually published in a book, but it first came out as comics. And if you want to, of course, you're welcome to flip through these. Um, and Charles Burns, though he was from Seattle, uh, lived in Philadelphia. And so we got together with him, and approved the idea, and we took, we took images from the covers of the comics, or sometimes from individual panels, and uh, I've got, we've got the labels of these beers there. Uh, I have to say, though, that one of the beers that's depicted there is not the one we're going to be tasting. I guess I got a little confused when I asked the woman in our office to put this together, but we'll get, we'll get to that later. It doesn't really matter. The one that I wanted us to drink is here. Uh, so... We, uh, we picked images from them, gave them our graphics, our graphic designer, gave them a bit of a spin, um, and she approved everything with him. I wrote all the copy for the labels and the press releases and all that stuff. Uh, but it was, it was interesting to come up with all these ideas and uh, go about procuring the ingredients and all that. I've always enjoyed this beer. Um, So, um, anyway, I guess we, well, I don't want to hustle through these beers either. Um, I want us to be able to kind of enjoy them. And if you have any questions about anything as we go along the way, feel free to interrupt me. Yes. Did everyone hear that? Okay. Uh, well, I won't, I won't say that... Please repeat it. Okay, sure. He asked if, if, if really we've ever had any you know, total disasters from some of these projects that we've undertaken, because it is, it is a commitment. You know, it's, a, it's a lot of money for the specialty ingredients, and, of course, when you're making beer batches of that size, uh, just the basic raw materials, the hops and the malt, represent a substantial amount of money. So has anything really gone disastrously wrong? Um, Thankfully, not disastrously wrong with any sort of special project like this. I mean, I guess we're always kind of too busy to get real nervous about it because we just need to get it done and get it out there. Um, But it's a very good question. In fact, at that same talk that I gave at the Homebrewers Conference last year, uh, a guy said, so, you know, you probably try these all out, you know, on a pilot system or something, right? And I said, well... No, we have to get these out fast. So in many cases, we're making 240 barrels on the first go. And they made that noise that those little alien toys make in Toy Story. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it, is, it, is a bit, it is a bit iffy because, you know, of course we've had batches of beer that have gone wrong. And we've, you know, we, in this production brewery, not everything has been totally smooth. We've dumped a couple of batches because, you know, somebody is you know, forgotten to chill a tank or prematurely chilled a tank or something like that. Thank God it hasn't happened with one of these super specialty projects. But uh, there's always that risk. Yes? How would I characterize the contribution the elderflower makes? Um, well, I think the yeast is, you know, a bit of a phenolic background. I think the elderflowers have diminished a bit over time, so it's maybe not as obvious it was, as it was when it was younger. But that, but that floral kind of, almost verging on sweetness, that this beer has, I think that's the contribution of the elderflower. Uh, it's kind of a heady, heady aroma uh, when 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 you're brewing with it, and I think. Um, it still got it, but um, I, in fairness, I do need to point out that this was last June's beer, so this beer is a year old, so to be perfectly honest, I think it has diminished a bit so Charles Burns now lives in Philadelphia, and as I said, we worked sort of in conjunction with him. He came out uh, for he came out for one of the uh one of the openings and signed comics and and uh he was very uh sort of closed, uh, very shy guy that probably surprises you. Um, but it was fun to have him out and have him be involved in it. And every month we sent him a case of the beer to Philadelphia and, um, so that he could enjoy it. Um, he did, he did enjoy it. And, uh, we're now pouring, uh, the Mortis and this, this was a really interesting beer to brew uh, and it was an especially interesting beer to uh, get the raw materials for. Um, as I said before, every beer has a story and some of the background on this particular beer is that the, when, we, when we, we've done a lot of work in, congen- in cooperative brewing and various projects with New Belgium over the years, um, and I, you know, many, some of you probably know that Kim Jordan, the CEO of New Belgium, is my girlfriend. Uh, But the work that we started doing predated our relationship, so, you know, uh, one of the first projects we ever did with them, uh, we were waiting for sort of the legal stuff to go through so that we could start brewing for each other in our respective facilities, and the brewers just got impatient. We just wanted to get started on stuff, so Peter Bukhardt and Grady Hull, their brewmaster and assistant brewmaster, came out to Seattle and they brought with them uh, two kegs, one of which had uh, lactobacillus in it, and the other one had uh, britanomyces. So uh, we brewed we brewed a, a lactobacillus beer, a, a slightly sour beer, at one of our breweries, the brewery on Capitol Hill, uh, which we ended up, I think Pete, it was a beer that Peter had brewed in his brew pub in Belgium before, long before he had uh, the job at New Belgium. And uh, uh, while we were brewing that beer we sort of schemed another beer that we could brew and we went out uh... while things were going on during the boil and that stuff and i took them around to some of the specialty markets around seattle we have a lot of great uh... asian specialty markets you know vietnamese markets korean markets and and we have our big uh... japanese supermarket Uwajimaya, and we went down there and looked at all the crazy produce that many of these places had and what we decided to do, because it was the right time of year for it, and they were ripe, was make, to make a persimmon beer. And so we made a 100% Britannomyces persimmon beer with curry leaves. Um, and that was an interesting beer. Uh, and we decided to bring that, bring that what part of that idea back for this particular beer. Um, now, back when we made that other beer, it was an eight-barrel batch. And so we, I think we used about 50 pounds of persimmons and one of our kitchen guys was kind enough to blanch them all and puree them for us and so we ended up with oh I think, you know, a bucket and a half of persimmons, something like that Um, we just threw that into the fermenter and it was part of the fermentation now for this one, since we were doing 240 barrels of it I needed to use gee let's see, 58 times 30 times 50 is 1500 pounds of persimmons so um, First of all, I had to get them. Um, we had to wait for them to arrive because then, you know, of course, as luck would have it, the persimmon crop was late that year. So we... Uh, we, I got the persimmons from the same guy that we get a lot of our pumpkins from for our pumpkin festival. And... Um, I knew I needed to get them processed somehow. At first I talked to our chef about putting people on shifts to process them and he really was not crazy about the idea. So a friend of mine has a pickled pepper company in Seattle, Mama Lil's Peppers, they're great. And uh, he knew a lot of food processors in the Yakima Valley and elsewhere because he you know, grows his peppers over, over in the Yakima Valley, processes them there. And um, he had worked with a food processor up in Gold Bar, a town up on Route Two, heading toward the Cascades, the North Cascades, toward the North Cascades Highway. And um, he hooked me up with this outfit that he thought could do this for me. So we were really kind of under the gun. We, we we brewed the beer before we added the persimmons because we needed the Britannomyces to develop, and we knew that I knew that if I waited for the persimmons to be ready, that the beer wouldn't be ready in time. So we brewed the beer, got the brett going, uh, and it fermented beautifully. And then um, I was really kind of in a hurry to get these persimmons in, so I called up this food, pro- food processor in Gold Bar, Washington. And the guy got on the phone. His name was George Wolfe. And um, I told him what I wanted to do, and he said, well, let me tell you how we do business here. You come up here. We sit down. We get to know each other. And we figure out you know, what I can do for you and what it's going to cost. You go back and talk to your people. Then you get back to me. And I was like, I don't have time for this. I mean, this is great and very old world, but I got to get this stuff done. But I did it. I went up there. Had, we had our sit down. You know, I talked to George about what we were going to do. And he approved it and all that stuff. Um, and so I spent the better part of a day doing that. And then the, the next week, when I had the persimmons, I put uh, all the persimmons in the back of my into my Honda Element. I fit them all in there, <laughs> and drove up to the food processing plant. Uh, came in in the morning. Uh, when I arrived, they were processing uh, pepper jellies. A woman who had who had a pepper jelly company was making pepper jelly on his equipment. Uh, they ran a couple of. Uh, a, like one box of persimmons through the whole process. They put them in a cooker to blanch the skin, then pureed them, and the skin was ejected and all that stuff. And then they put them in buckets. I approved uh, the result and then, I, you know, it's this, this place is, oh, I don't know, probably an hour and 15 minutes away from Seattle, so it didn't make sense for me to drive all the way back down, so I just went to the public library and did some work and re- read and all that stuff while they were doing the persimmons. And when I went back, they were done with my stuff, and they were on to making curry sauces. So anyway, so then I loaded all the buckets of this into my, into my element again and drove back down to Seattle, and uh, kind of forgot that I had them. I went out to pass a guy at one point and kind of got into trouble because, you know, there was oncoming traffic and my pickup was not what I was expecting it to be. Uh, but anyway, I got them back there. We threw, dr- dumped the buckets into the fermenter, into the already uh, preceding fermentation, and and it went on from there. Now, this beer, um, this one, I think, has aged really well. And the, the stuff that we have left over... Uh, and I tried to make sure that we would have some left over, we're aging warm uh, because Britannomyces doesn't, doesn't like to be cold. It doesn't really um, make the flavors that we prize in beer as well uh, when it's cold as, as it does when it's more room temperature. So we've been aging this beer warm with the expected result that it will become much more sour over time. And I think that, that, that is being borne out by some of the stuff that I've tasted. This isn't super sour, but I think the persimmons are a really interesting flavor. But that was definitely a case of an ingredient that in very small quantities is very easy to manage but uh, in very large ones becomes, you know, strange and challenging in a hurry. We also, um, we were, since since our production facility was fairly new, we were a little bit nervous about using our bottling equipment to bottle something that had, you know, stuff that you really don't want to get into some of your other fermentations, the Britannomyces. So we... um, what we did before we had the production brewery with our own bottling equipment is we used a, a mobile bottler, an itinerant bottler in Seattle who goes travels around from brewery to brewery, uh, wheels equipment off of his truck, uh, fills however many cases you can fit into a day's work and then goes away. And so we'd used him for years and we got him to come back and do this particular beer and and we paid to replace all the rubber parts that could possibly be affected by this and we promised a promise that I'm breaking constantly we promised not to tell anybody that we had done th- that he had done that for us so that nobody else would expect the same favor but you know he goes around and bottles beer from uh, breweries that use any number of different yeasts, so he's, his sanitation is good. We weren't really worried, but just to, to allay his, his... He wasn't even really afraid, but just to be fair about it, we replaced all those parts that maybe, maybe could have been affected by it. So, um, let's see. While we're still drinking this beer, I'm, I'm drinking faster than the rest of you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, let's see. Um, we've got... We started with the wasteland. We've got the mortis, the omen that's listed here on this sheet. The Belgian raspberry stout—that was the November beer—is not what we're having. Um, so, well, I think you'll like what I think. What you, I think you'll like what what's there instead. <laughs> um, sorry? Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, anybody wondering anything else? I, I think this caterpillar is really disturbing. Extremely. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, well, just the Omen label, that's, that's skin. <laughs> um, any other questions while we're waiting to uh, move on to the next one? No, my fa- that is not my face on the caterpillar. <laughs> the caterpillar, I guess if you put glasses on it, it would kind of look like Charles Burns. But I, uh, I ent- I, I'm probably going to be uh, using that food processing guy again, and I'm hoping that I can act on the credit of already having my chin wag with him uh, to move into the next project. Um, we're, we're now, what the outgrowth of this, this project has gone into, a, moved into a new project for this year, not every month, because we can't possibly keep up with that kind of demand and that kind of schedule. But uh, we're doing intermittent projects with another fan of graphics artist uh, named uh, Jim Woodring, and I think many of you would probably recognize some of his work. He he, he does, um, it's weird, but not not. I don't think it's as disturbing. Well, some of it is as disturbing because he has this this character called Manhog, and that's real. I don't know where that came from, but. Um, this this new stuff is coming out about every three to four months. We've released the first one, and this one, the, this series, we're calling Oddland. Um, the first one we did is a peppercorn saison with green, pink, black, and white peppercorns, which is actually available right now um, in this area, including in this area, uh, in bottles. And I'm not sure if I'm not sure. I don't think any draft came out here, did it? Yeah, but there there are some bottles. But he he does really pretty amazing work, and. Where with Charles Burns we use the images that already existed, he's creating new, this guy Jim Woodring is creating new images for us each time, and I'm trying to be as collaborative as possible as I can with him, um, so what I do is I send him the very the rudiments of the idea uh, for the beer, and then he sends back a a couple of sketches that uh, have struck him when he's been reading what the beer is gonna be like. And what I really wanna do is get to the point at which some of his images suggest a little changes that I'd like to make to the beer. And so we had an opening for the very first one, the the peppercorn one, Um, and uh, he was there and he had had put up, hung up some artworks because we did it in in an art gallery And uh, he put up some sketches that he had done, sort of working into the whole notion of doing this kind of stuff. And he had these little creatures in beer labels. You know, he had one for cherry, one for apricot, uh, and one for sorrel, or no, for, for alfalfa. And so I thought, gee, a cherry alfalfa beer sounds good. So I think I'm probably gonna be taking bales of alfalfa, and I wanna add sorrel too, up to George Wolf, and have him process that and uh, add that to the next beer. Um, the beer we're tasting now is called Doom. And this was the 12th beer, the last beer, the beer that we did for December's release. And uh, w- this beer had some genesis, uh, one version of this, this sort of the direction this, this beer came from. We first brewed for an iron brewer competition, uh, where we were given the, the necessity of using two particular ingredients. Uh, and then competing against one other brewery in the Seattle area. Um, when one of my... I was, I was in Barcelona for a few months uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, I took a little sabbatical and did that. And while I was there, I was informed by email from one of my assistants that we were doing this project, and he wrote that the ingredients that we'd been given to work with were treacle and cats. <coughs> and... I didn't really know what to make of that I mean you know I figured catnip was kind of a dodge and then I sort of thought well gee maybe we could make a little treadmill and a cat could help grant grind some of the grain or something but it turned out it was oats he, he had mistyped oats <laughs> so we brewed a beer uh, and we, we wanted to use I decided that using using dark treacle was a little too obvious, you know, I thought, you know, that's, most people would use dark treacle and put it in a stout or a brown ale or something like that, and that just seemed too obvious to me to want to do, unless it was so obvious that the other guys weren't going to do it either, so anyway, I decided to use golden syrup, which is a a pale form of treacle. And so we used golden syrup, uh, we used oats, and this is for that beer. This this beer has the golden syrup, it doesn't have oats. But for this other beer, we used golden syrup and oats, um, and we used uh, golden raisins, which we soaked in rum and pureed and added that. And we made a very small batch of that. Uh, and uh, I thought it was a delicious beer. We also used uh, Nelson Savanne Hops from New Zealand, which I'm totally in love with, which are very, very hard to get and super expensive, which is one reason. I, many, many of the, those are all reasons why I love them. Um, and so uh, we made this beer, and because we went to the bar where the comp- competition was being held, and I was a little concerned that I would get some sort of a parliamentary challenge to the fact that I'd use golden syrup. Like, was that really treacle? So I wrote to a friend of mine in England who used to run the White Horse Tavern in Parsons Green and now runs a terrific b and up in East Anglia right near Adnams Brewery. And I asked him if he would write me a testimonial from an English point of view and that, that golden syrup was actually treacle. And he also contacted Derek Prentiss, who, who works at Fuller's, who used to be the brewmaster at Young's. And so I went went to this thing with two emails in hand in case anybody tried to mount any kind of challenge. And these guys were saying, yes, golden syrup is treacle. So anyway, fast, we, and by the way, we lost. We lost by like six votes to, to, this, to this other brewery. Uh, but we all loved the beer. And so when, when it came time to come up with a, another beer for the Apocalypse series, sort of the culminating one, we decided to, 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 to do this one. We called that first one Triacula because that was the Latin word for treacle. And then for our 15th anniversary, we brewed a stronger version of it, a double version, so that was Sextacula. And uh, so this was a a slight variation on that, too. So in the smaller batch size, we had used uh, English golden syrup that I'd gotten from some sort of, you know, online tea site or something. We'd gotten very small bottles of it that we had to squeeze into into the kettle to boil. But once again we were making 240 barrels of it. So I needed more than that. And I couldn't get that much from England. Um, I got, you know, onto a couple of uh, sort of email, sort of disaster scenarios with getting things, getting notices all the time from places in India and China that would sell, you know, 24 metric tons of stuff. But that was more than I really needed. And I don't know how that would have worked anyway. But... um, so I, d- I discovered just by an online search there was a, that there was a manufacturer of golden syrup up in Vancouver, B.C., which is just up the road from us. So uh, I contacted them, and, you know, it was the same stuff, basically. And uh, so I arranged to buy it, and the, tr- the trouble was that they couldn't ship it to the U.S. because it was, uh, they weren't allowed to import it because since cane doesn't grow in Canada it wasn't a Canadian product. They had to import the cane to make it, and so they weren't then allowed to export it as a, as a food product to the US, which doesn't quite make sense to me, but that's what they told me. So I was gonna have to go up to BC to get it, and so we had to go through a middleman, a sugar merchant. And um, so once again, I drove up in the element and uh, went to the sugar merchant and got something like 24 five gallon buckets of golden syrup. Uh, but it wasn't, but it wasn't even that is even, even that easy. I had to, since it was a, since I was bringing it in, of course, I was going to have to bring it across the border and clear, not just customs, but I would, was going to have to go through an FDA clearance, uh, for, you know, like bioterrorism concerns and that kind of stuff. I would also have to pay, you know, duty, of course, based on what, what was found in the class of the myriad classifications they have for all that stuff, and so I had to make an appointment for when my border crossing was going to be. I spent a lot of time talking to people up at the border crossing saying, how is this really going to work? Is this going to happen? And you know, we finally, uh, finally I got to the point where I, was, I, I realized that we were talking about the difference between paying like $40 of duty and $200 of duty. It was like, I don't care. You know, I'll pay the duty. It doesn't matter. So... It actually went fairly well. I showed up for my border crossing at the time that I was scheduled to be there. They were impressed. Uh, we, had to look through, we had to look through a catalog like this thick uh, to get the precise classification of what product it was that I was bringing in. And I think I only had to pay like 30 bucks or something like that when it was all over. So I brought that in. Um, got that down, that was able to be part of the brew. Uh, the golden raisins were mostly just a mess you know because instead of ten pounds of golden raisins, we're making you know three hundred pounds of them and using one of those big sort of you know like the little uh, mini uh, mixer things that you use in your kitchen. I mean you know if you know anything about rest or, you know any experience in restaurant kitchens, we have bigger ones of those uh they 're you know like that long. And so they tried to puree these raisins that were soaked in really diluted rum because we knew we couldn't actually do that, you know, in terms of TTB. Um, And they bloated up like grapes, of course, because they were soaked and they were all over the place. Um, And, you know, but anyway, that's, that's doom. I think it's about 65. I mean, it's not super fierce, but there's definitely a presence. This was one of my favorite ones, the apocalypse Spears. But we should probably keep moving because I don't want to go over. Um, I'm going to start talking about Pest before that's really, oh, good, it's circulating. Boy, these guys are really on it. Um, Now, I wanted to talk about this this is a sort of borrowing a page out of my homebrewers conference talk last year. Um, I wanted to talk about the genesis of the idea of this beer, um, and the reason you have all these different beers mentioned here uh, is because it was a very it was a trail that started with one and went to the next and on to the next and eventually culminated in this particular beer. Um, a few years ago, I read a really interesting profile of a guy who had a chocolate company in Oregon called uh, Dagoba Chocolate, right? I always get confused because the planet that Yoda lived on was Dagoba, and so it's spelled the same way. Anyway, um, so I, it was a really fascinating profile, I and mean, this guy was crazy, and, uh, I mean, apparently he... He started this chocolate company with his girlfriend, with whom he'd been together for a couple of decades, I think. And one night he had a dream in which he was uh, having some sort of communion with like a chocolate goddess. And he woke up and broke up with his girlfriend and, you know, went even farther off the deep end in terms of producing chocolate. And one of the things that he mentioned in there was the different chili chocolates Ch- ch- chocolates with chili chocolate with chili that he had done and of course at this point that's not an unusual idea we've all had those but i hadn't really come in contact with that very much and so i decided that i wanted to make a, a sort of a lightweight chocolate chili stout and not long after that i went up to the great great Al- the alaskan beer and barley wine festival and which i'd been to a couple of times before and Sam Calagione was the keynote speaker at this homebrewers gathering right before the conference started. And, um, oh, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> anyway, um, somebody asked him what projects they were working on at Dogfish Head. And he said, well, I've been working on this idea for a chocolate chili stout. And um, I went up to him afterward and I said, did you read that profile in the New Yorker? He said, yeah, I did. So that was where he'd gotten the idea for that. So I've got the logo of the beer that we made, which was the XOXO or Jojo or whatever uh, chocolate chili stout that we did, and then the Theobroma that they came out with. And then later on, uh, I incorporated a lot of these ideas using chilies and, co- and cocoa and various other spices for a Mexican-themed pumpkin beer that we did that we called Coche de Medianoche, you know, because the pumpkin, of course, the coach turns back into a pumpkin at midnight. Um, And then my friends at New Belgium were familiar with that beer, and we had used five different kinds of chilies in the Coche de Medianoche. And so when they made the cocomole, it it had never occurred to them to use, um, I think, uh, guajillo chilies. So, our having done these other beers contributed to what they did with the mole, and then I tasted the mole, and thought about what I wanted to do when it came to doing Pest. So, you know, we all work together, we all have the same ideas, and uh, it's a lot of fun because we all do things just a little bit differently. So, when we did Pest, one picture that I would, would, would have shown if I'd had a thoroughly tiresome PowerPoint presentation, was the containers of all the chili powders that we used when we brewed this beer. I mean it looked like it looked like the spice market in Marrakesh. Um, You know beautiful different colored mounds of powders that went into this thing. Um, We used a lot of cocoa and we uh, used two 10 hectoliter uh, serving tanks that we weren't using that we recirculated the, you know, some of the beer through as it was being knocked out with the cocoa to sort of try to dilute it and get it to incorporate into the liquid and then injected all of that into the fermentation now this, this is an intense beer I think if I had it to do over again from the start I might have toned it down just a bit <laughs> But I do think it has a lot of appeal. I mean, it's, you know, it's going up my nose. Um, this is a great cooking beer. It was also a beer that we found a fair amount of on our hands when its cycle had kind of ended. You know, because it's sort of a sort of a six to eight ounce sample beer, more than a three to four pint beer. <laughs> so um, we had a bunch left over. So for a long time at our marketing meetings, I would I would I would propose that we start a website entirely devoted to cooking with pest. (laughs) I do think it's a delicious beer, but it's a delicious beer in small quantities. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, that guy. (laughs) So we we did, just to give you an idea of some of the other beers that we did to run quickly through them, another one that we found hanging heavily on our hands was a pale bock we made with beets. So I I wanted to make a bright red Bach beer. And I think it was a great success. But once again, it had limited appeal. Uh, We did a Yerba Mate Triple to kick things off. That was called Nibiru and named after the planet that's supposedly going to run into Earth at some point. Uh, The second one was a strong heather ale called Rapture. Uh, The third was a cardamom pale ale called Fallout. Then we did Pest. Uh, the omen I touched on but I don't want to touch on too much because we don't have that here the the, the raspberry uh, belgian stout uh, what okay anyway did you have a question so first of all you're a right thanks It's a great question, and I never know quite what to say. I was—he uh, he asked what the next, what the next big style might be for you know the ne- the next sort of demi generation that moves on from where we're at right now. I mean, I like to think that IPA will never die, but I, I live in the Northwest. Um, there was one time several months ago when I looked up at our board. Uh, it was actually during the fall, and we had we were pouring on our sixteen taps. We were pouring nine IPAs and five pumpkin beers. So if you didn't like pumpkin or IPA that day, you were out of luck. (laughs) Um, I was actually asked that same question on a radio interview this morning, or this afternoon, that I was doing in conjunction with the book, just the book about starting your own brewery, just having come out. And one thing that the guy said that I thought really sounded terrific, you know, since we're all in love with local ingredients, is the idea, and I don't think this is necessarily a big volume idea, but one thing that I would like to see more of is people doing things that are more sort of indigenous and super local things that are just like painfully locally sourced um, and maybe borrowing from some historical style, stuff like that. I mean, I've judged the indigenous beer category a few, for the last few years since it was in, conceived at the GABF, and it's always it's one of the most interesting categories I've ever judged because people... Come up with things that use local ingredients or, or brewed with, you know, wild yeasts that occur where they are, uh, stuff that comes out of history and from you know the farmer's field next door. I think that's something that has a lot of legs. But as far as, as far as something that's going to be a ton of volume, um, I'm not sure. You know, during the hop crisis, everybody thought people were going to be doing not so hoppy sessionable beers, and people say, oh, you know, we don't want to do Uh, intensely strong IPAs forever. Let's do something that you can drink a hundred of. So I don't know. I mean, I I like the idea of developing the local thought, the local notion. Um, But, uh, boy, I'm delighted that IPA is as popular as it is. And that's not a very good answer to your question. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yes? What's the suggestion that I would give anyone looking to start their own brewery? Um, the uh, suggestion that I would give anyone looking to start their own brewery? You know, know your shit. I mean, a lot of people are getting into the business without any professional experience, and that's okay, but I think you really need to, uh, you really need to be aware of the market and you know, know what it's like to work with a distributor or, you know, figure out what your portfolio is going to be. Um, you know, really do your work before you ter- sort of take the plunge. Because a lot of people are just winging it. And we're all worried about quality. And I think it's great that all these breweries are starting up. Uh, but I think people really need to take the time and be considered about every step they take. Well, oh, yes. I mentioned that in my book. <laughs> yes. What specialty ingredient do I prize above all others? What most wonderful, special, shiny object do I like that I would use ever and ever again? Um, Well, gee, uh, what have I used a lot of? I mean, you know, I've done a lot of specialty beers that I'm very, very proud of. Um, You know, I love our Jasmine IPA. I uh, wouldn't use jasmine again in another beer because it's very distinctive, and I think it's got that market sort of cornered. Excuse me. Um, I like the treacle. I've used that a number of times. Uh, gee, what, what, what do I use a lot? Um, hmm. You've kind of stumped me. Is
1: there a hop? Uh-huh.
0: Well, that you would choose? I mean, I I, you know, I live 100 miles from the Yakima Valley, so I'm fortunate in that I have really good relationships with a number of farmers over there, and so I've been able to be one of the first people to brew with a number of different hop varieties. I was the first one to brew with Sriracha Ace because Darren Gamache called me up and he said, we grew three plants of this crazy Japanese variety. We're going to pelletize them and give them all to you. You know, brew something interesting. So I brewed a, a double IPA that had... You know, first wort mash hops, first wort hops, you know, like five hop additions, hop back, dry hop, whatever, all the way through. And uh, I named it after the uh, the only non-Japanese-born sumo champion, Kanishiki, because I was doing a Japanese variety that was grown in America, and so it was all this, this mish- geographical mishmash. Um, but... Uh, uh, I, love, I love the Nelson Savanne. I love some of the other New Zealand stuff. I look forward to trying more of those in the future. But I also think, you know, we have to, we all have to, this is sort of a parenthesis, we all have to be aware of some of the new things that are coming out because we, we, with as many breweries are starting, uh, with, with all of us growing, we, we can't all possibly get as much Amarillo as we want, for example. So we have to diversify. We have to reformulate. We have to think about that. Um, Gee, I mean that's that's a very good question, but I, I, I guess I, 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 I'm a, I'm peripatetic in terms of you know my adherence to specialty ingredients. So I like to uh, try something new. I, I like to go to the store, I like to read restaurant I mean uh, you know, recipes and food reviews and figure figure that stuff out. So I guess I I guess as long as it's something new and something I haven't tried, I want to try it. Okay. Hi. Um, have you experimented at all with essential oils or resins or anything like that in your beers? Um, well, oils in general are difficult in beer because they minimize, you know, they collect around the bubbles and they, you know, extracts of it. Well, we've used, we've, you know, we've experimented with hop extracts. I mean, some of my brewers uh, are desperate for me to develop... Uh, One in particular is desperate for me to develop some sort of a tincture with the jasmine or some of these other things because they're really hard to use, and that would make it a lot easier. Um, I'm all for, uh, I mean, I haven't haven't really tried too much in the way of that. I tend to go with just sort of the, the, the raw ingredient and throw in as much as I think I need to use. Um, I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd certainly be willing to run experiments with it. Actually, tomorrow morning I'm catching a, an early flight to Minnesota. I'm brewing a couple of collaborative pumpkin beers with the Twenty First Amendment guys. We're going to be brewing a triple uh, with uh, with galangal and tarragon, and we're going to be brewing a uh, Baltic porter. These are both with pumpkin, by the way. A Baltic porter with cinnamon and caraway. It's a secret. Oh okay. Sorry. <laughs> well, they do their they, they do their a lot of their big scale brewing at Cold Spring Brewing in Minnesota. And it's 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 so secret I'm not telling my parents I'm coming back to Minnesota. <laughs> well, she she's she's asserting that in a pumpkin beer, the flavor of pumpkin beer doesn't come through. And I think if the flavor, if the flavor or Dean, anyway, she's asserting that the flavor of pumpkin beer doesn't come through in a pumpkin beer, and I, I, I don't think I agree. At least not in a successful pumpkin beer. I think a pumpkin beer to justify the use of pumpkin, even though it has great historical antecedent. Uh, is that it has, you know, that, that you can tell there's pumpkin in it. It's, 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 a mouth, it's mostly a mouthfeel thing, sort of a slippery, slight astringency, which is something that you have to mitigate. And the most common way of doing that, of course, is with spicing. And I think, you know, you need to get away from using just those same five spices, but there are a lot of creative ways that you can do that. But I think, I think a, a successful pumpkin beer should have some residue, some, some flavor, and some feel that lets you know it's there. Because there are, there are pumpkin, beers, pumpkin beers out there that have no pumpkin in them. Is that it? In my opinion,
1: if, uh, if you never had Darko Moon, Elysian Darko Moon, you know, that's, that's a beer that tastes like pumpkin. It's amazing.
0: It's, a, it's the pumpkin, the Dark of the Moon is the pumpkin stout that we make, and the only spicing it has is cinnamon.
1: It's... It's fantastic.
0: GABF um, Silver Medal winner.
1: Absolutely. Come out to Denver for sure or uh, Elysian's Pumpkin
0: Festival. Right. Our, we have a pumpkin festival every year. This year it's the first weekend in October. Uh, last year we poured 84 different pumpkin beers, uh, 15 of which were ours, different styles. Fantastic. So that's kind of apocalyptic in itself. Thank you very much for coming.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Dick Cantwell, Elysian Brewing Company we got a little bit more time. You guys should run downstairs, try some more pairings. On behalf of the Brewers Association, my name is Andy Sparhawk. Thank you again. Please enjoy your time.
0: Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2013, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Saver 2013, as well as all the salons from previous years, at craftbeerradio.com slash saver, or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes, or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.